There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. On today's episode, Season 2, Episode 13, The Kamagata Maru. Today's episode is by special request for Melissa in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. On May 23, 1914, a crowded ship from Hong Kong carrying 376 passengers, most being immigrants from Punjab, British India, arrived in Vancouver's Burrard Inlet on the west coast of the Dominion of Canada. The passengers, all British subjects, were challenging the continuous passage regulation of 1908, which had been brought into force that year in an effort to curb Indian immigration to Canada. As a result, the Kamagata Maru was denied docking by the authorities. Following a two-month stalemate and a violent attempt to storm the boat, the ship was escorted out of the harbor by the Canadian military on July 23, 1914. A reminder, you can find us on a number of platforms. You can find us on Facebook and on SoundCloud just by searching Cool Canadian History. Of course, you can definitely find us on iTunes if you look under podcasts, searching Cool Canadian History. You can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And of course, you can always find us at our home, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. And if you go to the bottom of the page, you will see a donations tab courtesy of PayPal. This donations tab makes it very easy to donate to the podcast. And all donations are extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this bi-weekly podcast. So we thank you for those. Now, it is important to understand, first and foremost, the extreme racial tension that existed in British Columbia since it had joined Canada in 1871. While the largest population in B.C. was the First Nations population, the dominant population was the much smaller, somewhere between three to five times smaller, white, primarily Anglo-Saxon population. There was, of course, a sizable Chinese, Japanese, and now growing Indian population. You see, the white community of British Columbia was very concerned about what they saw as a growing number of non-white, non-Christian peoples arriving in their province. Numerous reasons were put forward for this. They were taking the jobs of hardworking whites. They were a threat to the Anglo-Saxon social order. And, of course, any number of stereotypical racist viewpoints were expressed as part of the challenge to the arrival of these immigrants. Now, in January 1908, as part of white British Columbia's effort to curb the immigration of people from Asia, 
the Government of Canada passed what has come to be known as the Continuous Journey Act. This act prevented the arrival of persons who did not come from their country of birth or citizenship through a continuous journey, basically meaning the ship could not stop if it wanted to come to Vancouver to disembark immigrants. This legislation was a fancy way of directly preventing Indians from coming over. Simply put, the great distance from India meant that most ships were forced to stop over in Japan or Hawaii. This pretty much put a stop to Indian immigration to BC. Now, living in British Malaya was a man named Gurdit Singh from the province of Sarhali, so he's originally born in India. He was a fisherman, a contractor, and a social and political activist. His grandfather had in fact fought against the British during the Anglo-Sikh Wars. Gurdit Singh was aware of the Continuous Journey Act, and in 1914 he set out to hire a boat that would sail directly from Calcutta to Vancouver, thus openly circumventing the Continuous Journey Act and helping hundreds of his people immigrate to Canada. Now, no boat would sail directly, but Singh chose to hire a ship regardless. He was planning a very public protest of the Continuous Journey Act. So in January of 1914, Gurdit Singh thus chartered the Japanese steam vessel Kamagata Maru. On board would be 340 Sikhs, 24 Muslims, 12 Hindus, and all of them British subjects. Remember, India was ruled by the Raj as part of the British Empire. Now, knowing this also adds another dimension to our story. You see, Gurdit Singh was also a supporter of the Gadarite movement. This movement was led by a large number of Indian intellectuals and activists, many of whom were actually living in Canada and the U.S. The ultimate aim of this movement was liberating India from British rule. In fact, both the Canadian government and American government had been spying on Indian groups up and down the west coast of North America, fearing radical and perhaps violent Indian independence activity. Within India... And globally, radical nationalists had even successfully assassinated several prominent British figures, a British viceroy in 1873, and in London in 1907, an Indian nationalist assassinated a former member of the British India government. Thus, while Singh sought to challenge the Canadian immigration law, he was also known by authorities in Britain and Canada as a nationalist. And it is probably no surprise that the, the distinction between a moderate and a radical nationalist would be lost on both Canadian and British authorities. Regardless, in April 1914, the Kamagata Maru set sail. It actually departed from Hong Kong, with a quick stopover in Shanghai and then Yokohama, before beginning its final run to Vancouver. In preparation for their arrival, the passengers had political meetings and read literature preparing themselves for what would be their very public challenge to Canadian immigration regulations. The ship arrived in May, first steaming into what is known as Coal Harbor, attempting to dock. Now, it was refused. And incredibly, and this is very interesting, the first immigration officer to actually meet the vessel to inform them that it would not be allowed to dock was none other than one of the earliest professional hockey stars in this country, Fred Cyclone Taylor. He was currently playing with the Vancouver Millionaires at the very same time that he was an immigration officer. He would actually go on to win a Stanley Cup with the Millionaires the next year. Now, upon notice that the ship had arrived in Vancouver's waters, the Premier of British Columbia, Richard McBride, made it very clear that none of the passengers would be allowed to disembark. Now, technically, the decision lay with Canadian Prime Minister Robert Borden, but McBride failed to wait for word from Ottawa. 
rallies began to be held on the mainland, protesting the arrival of the ship. At the same time that white British Columbians were organizing to make sure the ship was not allowed to dock, prominent members of the Vancouver Indo community were holding meetings and fundraisers. In fact, this shore committee, as it was called, was able to raise $22,000 to help with legal fees and ship costs as it sat in the harbor. On behalf of one of the passengers, this shore committee even launched a lawsuit against the Canadian government. Yet this was all to no avail, as the B.C. Supreme Court delivered a unanimous decision that it had no authority to intervene in the Department of Immigration's decision. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now on board, things began to get tense. As May moved into June, June moved into July, supplies, including water, were running low and conditions on board were becoming very hard and difficult. The passengers, in fact, mutinied at one point and relieved the Japanese captain of command of the ship. You see, now a real standoff ensued. Tense negotiations started to go back and forth between Canadian officials and the leaders on board the ship. There were numerous complexities. You see, some of the passengers on board were actually returning to Canada, including a British doctor and his family. There was cargo destined for Vancouver that was also on board the ship. But at the very same time, the authorities did not trust that if the ship was allowed to dock, the passengers deemed unfit to stay would somehow remain on board. They figured the moment it landed, they'd all be rushing off. As well, the authorities did not trust Gurdit Singh. They saw him as a radical nationalist. And those on the shore who were organizing in support of Singh were also seen in the same light. Now, many Canadian officials believed some sort of Indian nationalist conspiracy was afoot. Regardless, the Canadian government did not want to be responsible for the deaths of the passengers from lack of supplies, and the officials brought food and water on board in an attempt to at least prevent a humanitarian disaster from occurring in Canadian waters. Now, negotiations continued into mid-July, but to no avail. Frankly, the Canadian government would not allow the passengers to disembark, and by 17 July, the Canadian government had decided to pay for the cost of the return journey to India while drawing up deportation papers. It is interesting to note that throughout the tale, the Canadian government sought to adhere to the letter of the law in preventing the passengers from landing. Yet the law would only do so much. The passengers would not allow the Japanese captain to turn his ship around, and at this point, a man named Malcolm Reed, who was in charge of Vancouver Immigration, ordered the authorities to turn the ship around by force. Now, in the dark morning hours of July 19th, he ordered the tugboat Sea Lion to push the ship out to sea. On the tugboat were 160 police officers and recently sworn-in constabulary. Yet when the Sea Lion approached the Kamagata Maru, the Canadian escort party was shocked and unnerved to see all the Indian passengers manning the rails of the Kamagata Maru. They were armed with clubs, bricks, and scrap metal, and they started to rain down debris on the Sea Lion and its escort crew. The Sea Lion, you see, was uh, uh, positioned roughly five meters below the Kamagata Maru, so these people were easy targets. 
One passenger on the Kamagatamaru actually opened fire with a series of warning shots in the air above the heads of the escort party. A number of Canadian policemen were in fact hurt from this flying debris. The resistance was unexpected and heavy, and the sea lion retreated while the passengers on board the Kamagatamaru cheered. Now, how did they know this force was coming? This is a pretty interesting question. It had been reported after the fact that the passengers were communicating with a signaler on shore. Apparently, this signaler had found a spot in Stanley Park where you could signal the passengers to the building up of a police presence during the day of July 18th, so the day before. Now, at the same time that the sea line was ordered to push the Kamigatamaru out of the waters, the Canadian government mobilized the Royal Canadian Navy's HMCS Rainbow. When the Rainbow finally sailed into Vancouver's harbour, the resistance was officially broken. On the 23rd of July, with freshly stocked supplies, the Kamigatamaru sailed out of Canadian waters, escorted tightly by the HMCS Rainbow. Sadly, the drama for the passengers did not end there. Upon their arrival back in India, they docked at the port of Budge-Budge. The police, sent by the British authorities, went to arrest Gurdit Singh and a number of the other leaders. A riot broke out, shots were fired, and 19 of the disembarking passengers were killed. A small number of the passengers escaped, while most were captured and imprisoned. Gurdit Singh, in fact, managed to flee what was then called the Budge-Budge Riot and go into hiding. Now, in 1922, at the urging of none other than Mahatma Gandhi, he turned himself in. It was not until 2008 that the B.C. government formally apologized for the incident. Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper personally apologized that same year. And in 2016, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gave a formal apology in the House of Commons for an event that highlights a very dark period in the history of the province of British Columbia, and for Canada as a whole. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.